Welcome to the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years experience. My name is Leslie Watts, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Here with me are Jari Bolander, Valerie Francis, Anne Holly, and Kim Kessler. Each week, one of us proposes a favorite movie that they think is a great example of a key story principle. That editor has to make the case for their position with the help of a partner, while two of us play devil's advocate to check the validity of the proposition. This week, Valerie pitched Waking Ned Divine as a great example of progressive complications to the power of 10. This 1998 Irish film was written and directed by Kirk Jones. Valerie will be ably assisted on the A team by Jari. Anne and Kim will be on the B team. They're going to test the theory by evaluating it separately and from other perspectives so that in the end, we get a complete 360-degree view of the story principle of progressive complications. Valerie will start us off with the genre and a quick one-sentence summary each of the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff to orient us to the story. Okay, so Waking the Divine, I'm calling as a caper, a crime story with the, in the subgenre of caper. And although I'm calling it a caper, I'm the first to say that the first act definitely reads like a mystery, as Jackie et al., are, try to discover who the lottery winner is. The overall story, though, is a caper as Jackie enacts his plan to defraud the government of nearly seven million pounds. Jackie O'Shea doesn't have much of an internal arc to speak of. At the end of the film, he's pretty much the same as he was at the beginning. So before I move on, I want to take a minute to contrast this film with Mad Money, which is also a comedy caper. Both require a fair degree of suspension of disbelief but in my opinion, Waking at Divine, while not a perfect film, but it's close enough for jazz, pulls it off in a much better way. So why did I choose Waking at Divine? Well, one of the things we're trying to do this season on the podcast is to examine some of our favorite movies and figure out why we love them so much or what is it they're particularly good at? What is it about that movie that resonated with us? So one of the reasons I picked Waking at Divine is that it's a comedy. And if you remember, the first movie that I pitched was Manchester by the Sea, which was a complete tearjerker. And I had to kind of redeem myself <laughs> by coming up with a movie that is a little more lighthearted. <laughs> Waking the Divine is a family favorite of ours. And I mean, I've, I must have seen it 50 times and it still makes me laugh. So I watched it uh, back before I pitched it to the team. And when I watched it, I thought, you know what, I can see... Generally speaking, I can see the plot getting more and more complicated as it goes. So I think this would be a good one for us to look at progressive complications in The Power of Ten. Okay, so what's this movie all about? In the beginning hook, when Jackie O'Shea learns that someone from his village of Tullymore has won the Irish National Lottery, he sets out to discover who it is so he can share in the winnings. After discovering that his friend Ned Devine won, but then died from the shock of it, Jackie abandons his pursuit of the money. In the middle build, after dreaming about Ned, Jackie develops a new plan to claim the money and share it amongst all 52 inhabitants of Tullymore. When Lizzie Quinn blackmails Jackie for more than her share, he must comply with her wishes or risk being charged with a felony. He ignores her threats and continues with the scheme as planned. 
In the ending payoff, when the money has finally been received, Maggie, a local townswoman and single parent, must decide whether to reveal that her son Morris is Ned's heir and is rightfully entitled to 100% of the lottery winnings. She decides that more than money, Morris needs a father in the form of Pig Finn, who thinks he's the da anyway, and so she keeps her secret. Okay, so what does this story principle mean? We're examining the progressive complications and the power of 10 that Sean talks about in the story grid. So in chapter 41, Sean is talking about commandment number two, progressive complications. He says that conflict in a story has to escalate by degrees, which means that the plot has to get progressively more complicated. The issue facing the protagonist, whether it's an obstacle or an opportunity, has to be greater than the one before and can't be a repetition of something that has come before. To track a story's progressive complications, Sean uses something called the power of 10. We haven't talked about it a lot on this podcast or in the Fundamental Fridays posts, so I thought this would be an interesting thing for us to look at here on the podcast with Waking the Divine. So basically, the premise is that you list out all the complications in the story and assign them a number value based on how difficult it would be for the protagonist to reverse his decision, one being an easy switchback and 10 being absolutely irreversible. A character reaches the point of no return when no matter what he decides, he will be irrevocably changed by the experience. There is no turning back. Progressive complications, Sean says, must move the story forward, never backward. They do so by making life more and more difficult in positive as well as negative ways for the lead character. The stakes are always getting higher. Okay, so when I tackled this, I had to create a spreadsheet. Um, because that's what we do uh, here at StoryGrid. And I discovered that what I was doing was spending a lot of time, wasting a lot of time, to be honest, on this number system. Because although Sean talks about a power of 10, he doesn't really give us specific guidelines as to how to apply it. He says, and this is on page 166 of the print copy, but every now and then an editor will find a pro someone open enough or desperate enough to get back to basics. A writer interested in creating an inciting incident at level 10 with conflict complications that progress from 11 to 100 by story's end. So when I, I mean, I started by just listing all the scenes in the story and identifying the 15 core scenes and all that good stuff. But when I actually tried to put numbers on them, a numbering system on them, I would get tangled up very quickly and I was wasting a lot of time. So in the end, what I did was this. Scene one, act one, I gave it a progressive complication value of one. <laughs> and then I went from there. So when you look at the spreadsheet, and there's a, a link in the show notes to download this, and I strongly encourage you to have a look at it because on a podcast, I can't really show it to you. <laughs> and I think it's a really good, it was a really good exercise, time consuming though it was, and there was a lot of valuable information that came from it. And you'll see that I did act one in great detail. And then just for time considerations, acts two and three, so the middle build and ending payoff, I just kind of touched on the highlights. But you'll see there that if the story moved ahead just a little bit, it was either like a small obstacle or a small complication or a small opportunity rather. I just moved up from one number to the next. So one, two, three, four. If it was greater, I jumped. So I might've gone from say 15 to 17 or 15 to 19, depending on the size of it. 
There's one that's a really big jump, and that's the point of no return, because Jackie can't go back then. That is the point when Michael has actually met with the lottery man. They have impersonated a dead man. They cannot go back from that. So why do readers need to know this? When a story becomes progressively more complicated, readers or viewers stay interested. It's really that simple. When the stakes are constantly being raised through encounters with obstacles or opportunities, the reader is compelled to keep turning the pages, to keep reading. He's wondering what will happen next, or how will the protagonist get out of the situation? So this is about creating narrative drive. How would a writer use this concept to create a great story? The concept of progressive complications. So to progressively complicate a story, a writer must present the protagonist with unique obstacles and opportunities that raise the stakes. Always raise the stakes. Backward movement, that is a complication with stakes lower than the one before it, will make the story lose momentum. Now I'm using that word unique intentionally and for two reasons. The first reason is that readers have probably seen the complication that you're about to write before in other stories. So the word unique reminds us to innovate. What obstacles and opportunities can the protagonist face that the audience has not seen before in other stories? And the second reason is that the complication that your protagonist is about to encounter may have already been used in your own story. So it's unique in that it can't be used in your story before, and it can't have been used in other stories before. Now, that's not to say everything has to be 100% unique all the time, but you do have to find an interesting twist on what you're about to write. Otherwise, your reader is going to see it coming. And if they, can, if they predict too many things in your story, they're going to stop reading. So I thought Waking Ned Divine might be a good film to study The Power of Ten or Progressive Complications because there's no internal genre to speak of. And the subplot, which is the Maggie and Pigfin love story, is essentially a setup for a complication that's paid off in the end. So as I mentioned, in order to analyze the film's complications and whether or not they progress, I created a spreadsheet, and there's a link to it in the show notes. So why is Waking Ned Divine, in my opinion, a good example of progressive complications? So on the spreadsheet, you'll see that I tracked the global story only, that is Jackie's pursuit of the lottery winnings. And I think that overall, it does a really good job of progressive complications. So remember that the power of 10, what Sean calls a power of 10, all it is is a way of analyzing whether a story is progressively complicating, whether the stakes are being raised, whether there's a mix of obstacles and opportunities, and generally whether the story is being moved forward. So it's measuring narrative drive. It's not about the numbering system. It's about the analysis. So even though I used consecutive numbers rather than specifically assigning a power of 10, I was still able to see when I looked down that column on the spreadsheet, whether the screenwriter progressively complicated Jackie's pursuit of the lottery winnings or not. So in a nutshell, here's what I found. The complications worked well, both on the micro scene level and the macro act levels. And that was fascinating to see that one complication was moving the story two ways. There was also a really nice mix of obstacles, which are indicated on the spreadsheet by a negative sign, and opportunities, which are indicated on the spreadsheet by a positive sign. And each one either brought Jackie closer to the money or further away from it. And the complications progressed incrementally for the most part. But as I said, there were a couple of times when there was a, a jump 
I mentioned the midpoint shift, for example, which is the point of no return. It's also the inciting crime obligatory scene. And that's when Michael impersonates Ned for the first time. So again, I just want to say the numbering assignment really is subjective and imperfect. It isn't about finding the precise degree of complication. It's about getting a clear idea of whether the story is progressing or regressing. Now, because we are who we are, we are looking at this as a work in progress because this is really the first time we've tackled it. And as I said to the other team members when I was preparing for this episode, I think I've created a monster when, <laughs> when suddenly I had this <laughs> this big spreadsheet I was trying to deal with. So this is something that we're working on in the background. Um, I think that what I have here is, if I do say so myself, a really good starting point. <laughs> and more will come from it as we get deeper into this. In fact, uh, Kim and I are going to work more on this and come up with a Fundamental Fridays post on it. Um, so stay tuned for more on that. And when we get a date for that, we'll let you know. Okay. Although... For the most part, this film does progressively complicate. There is one area where it did not get more complicated, and that's in the ending payoff. And I think it's worth looking at because we can learn a lot by what doesn't work, right? So the filmmaker spent a lot of time setting up the Maurice as Ned's son plotline, but they didn't pay it off very well, in my opinion. And once again, I'm going to refer you to Anne's excellent Fundamental Fridays article entitled Storytellers Assemble, which is all about setups and payoffs. And if you haven't read it yet, you really need to do so. And I'll put a link for that in the show notes. As Ned's heir, Maurice is entitled to all of the lottery winnings, not just one fifty-second of it, because there are 52 people in Tullymore and they plan on dividing the winnings amongst all 52 of them. This is a pretty significant plot point and one that you'd expect to be paid off in a big way, but instead, to my mind, it kind of fizzles. Lizzie Quinn is established as the biggest force of antagonism in the story. It's fairly easy for the villagers to pull the wool over Jim Kelly's eyes, and Jim Kelly is the lottery man, and no one knows that Ned has a son, including the audience. So when Lizzie is making her way to the phone booth in the ending payoff, the tension starts to rise. When she goes over the cliff in the phone booth, the villagers and the audience cheer. Now, the villagers, of course, are cheering in response to music that they're hearing, but the way they've cut the film, it, it works as them also cheering for Lizzie having gone over the cliff. So when you're watching, it feels like this is the climax of the story, right? But instead, when we cut from that back to the pub, we have the scene where Maggie reveals her secret. And this kinds of kind of comes out of nowhere in my opinion. And while it's definitely an obstacle, it's dealt with so quickly that it doesn't carry the same weight as Lizzie calling the lottery to report the guys. As such, this is the one point in the movie where the complications regress rather than progress. Now, here's a little word to the wise. There is an inherent risk in analyzing a film that you love because you will see the flaws in it. And for me, that is what happened with Waking the Divine. This is a lighthearted family movie and one, as I said, I've watched with my kids for years and I'm going to keep watching it because I still love it, warts and all. That is such a good point. On the upside of that, it's a question that comes to us once in a while. When a story that you love like this reveals its flaws, you really learn the story principles involved. I always get a lot more as a writer and as an editor when I look at something that doesn't work and try and figure out why. and. 
it's hard to admit that something that I love doesn't quite work perfectly, but it's really educational. I had very fond memories of this movie, but they were kind of vague and nonspecific. Like I remember it being cute. And after this analysis, I, I could understand why the only thing that really stuck with me was that it was Irish and there was a phone booth, a very funny phone booth scene. It had a lot of charm. It was humorous. But the way it ended, the, that backing off on the complications, really did ensure that the, the impression wasn't of a, like a really enduring story. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point, because most people who have seen this movie remember that phone booth scene. It's, I mean, it's really funny. It is hilarious. <laughs> the, the one scene I always remember is the naked guy yeah, on yeah. the motorcycle. The phone booth one I totally forgot about, but I'm like, naked, naked guy on the motorcycle. Kelly with yeah, his bits is... floating around. Ah. Yeah, that was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> his bits, bits and bobs. <laughs> okay. We're serious editors here. Let's stay focused. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, serious editors. Yeah, sure. Beans and Franks floating in the wind. Sorry. I, now I got the whole like, mother, I just can't get this image out of my mind. Oh, oh my. Okay. Calm down. Relax. All right. Relax. Uh, refocus. Um, <laughs> a couple of areas other than Maggie's reveal. <laughs> that I thought could have been stronger. Oh my God, I got to try and focus now. All right, so a couple of areas other than Maggie's reveal that I thought could have been stronger were the dream scene, which is actually the inciting incident of the middle build. Now, this is something that did stand out to me. I do remember when I first watched it and I didn't know why. Now I know, of course, that dreams are cliche and they're, I think writers can do better than fall back on a dream. So I think had they dug deeper and come up with something a little more innovative, this movie would have gone from good to great or great to stupendous, <laughs> depending on your whether you like it or not. So the other scene is the beach scene when Jim Kelly arrives from Dublin. And of course, he's the guy from the lottery. Now it does complicate the plot. So, you know, it works fine from that point of view. But there's no reason for Jackie to not have introduced himself as Ned. He'd planned to play that role all along, and he had studied Ned's personal details, so he could easily have started the charade then and there. Now, of course, Ian Bannon and David Kelly were such marvelous actors. Those are the guys who played Jackie and Michael, respectively. And the characters are so charming. And the sight gag that we just talked about of Michael Sullivan on the motorbike is so funny that as an audience member, we just, we don't even stop to think about why Jackie is not introducing himself as Ned. So I am more than happy to believe that Jackie simply choked. As cunning and as clever as he is, he was caught unawares and his natural instinct was to default to the truth. Now, of course, that's not actually in the story. I'm totally making it up. <laughs> but I'm happy to do that as a viewer because it, it just was an enjoyable part of the film. Um, and a funny gag. Um, so finally, our main protagonists, Jackie and Michael, have very little to do in the ending payoff. This is sort of the biggest crime of all, in my opinion. So the old priest, the former priest, returning to Tully Moore and dealing with Lizzie Quinn, comes very close to being a deus ex machina. Because if you recall, it's the priest returning to Tully Moore who actually bumps into the phone booth. It isn't actually a deus ex machina because the young priest has told us earlier that he will be returning. And instead it plays as a satisfying gag and it gets our heroes out of danger, right? 
What's less satisfying is that the ending payoff crisis and climax are Maggie's. They're not Jackie's. And Maggie is a secondary character because Jackie doesn't really have a crisis moment at all in the ending payoff. But Maggie has the crisis of whether to reveal that Morris is Ned's son or not. So these weaknesses notwithstanding, I still think that Waking Ned Divine is an excellent example of progressive complications that are both obstacles and opportunities. (laughs) <laughs> like we were just commenting before, a lot of the scenes in in this are just, you know, wonderfully done and cute and funny and out of the ordinary. And I think that's what I wanted to comment on and why I think that, you know, Waking the Divine does a really good job of you know, making the progressive complications escalate. Th- that's the beautiful thing about a great story is that obviously there's always guideposts along the way and you kind of want to get from guidepost to guidepost. The best way to do that is through progressive complication. And the, the, the real power of that is how are you going to do that in a really interesting way that is going to raise the stakes or amplify to 11. As Valerie skillfully uh, presented, there is just so many scenes that progressively complicate. Some go over the top, uh, while others kind of fall a little flat. Of course, some of the subplots like you could eliminate the love story thing, as everyone mentioned, and this thing would still work great. But what I wanted to really focus on was the set and setting of your story and how that is going to amplify the progressive complications. So we're in we're in a sleepy Irish town called Tullymore. I think we all have kind of a perception in our mind about what a sleepy Irish town is going to be, you know, how the, the inhabitants are going to act and all this. And this makes it a really good set and setting for what is to come. The town anchors our perceptions of what's going to happen. And this is really, really important because you want to have the ability to progressively complicate in these, you know, whatever we're going to call it, orders of magnitude or pushing it to 11. And a big part of that, again, is what's the expectation that the viewer or the reader has? And being able to set that in the environment is really powerful. Great example, Valerie just mentioned, when Jackie and Michael are on the beach, Jackie could have said he's Ned Divine, but he doesn't. And then the ensuing, like, oh yeah, Mr. Lotto, man, I will take you over to Ned's house. And then it's like, Michael has this mad dash, oh my God, get dressed, can't, I'm running, I mean, I'm riding naked to Ned's house. And you just get this hijinks of, wow, okay, if this was in a hippie commune and there was a naked bike riders, you wouldn't expect it. But from two elderly Irish men from a small town, that amps it up. Um, and that's just one example. They do, both Jackie and Michael, as not only the set and setting of Tullymore, but his characters provide a really good way to amplify a progressive complication. If they were younger men, if they were in the city, uh, you know, it wouldn't be as shocking, but they're older, more distinguished. They even look grandfatherly. They look like your favorite old guy at the pub. If they were younger, if they were different, it wouldn't, it wouldn't amplify as much. And this is exactly the same way that happened in the Full Monty. If all those guys were hot, doing the Full Monty wouldn't have mattered so much. But they're not. They're like average Joe, beer belly, old, wrinkly, whatever, and that amplifies it even more. So when you think about this, that's the sort of thing you kind of want to look at. How can the set and setting amplify the progressive complication? How can the characters, what they do 
Is it out of character or is it just out of character enough to make the reader slash viewer, wow, I didn't expect that. So I think that's what you want to try to go for. Okay. Thank you, Valerie and Jari. There's a lot of food for thought there. I wanted to mention a couple of things. Of course, you want to avoid repeating progressive complications or those that don't present increasingly difficult obstacles to the protagonist. But it's also important to avoid throwing in the kitchen sink, including random obstacles that aren't directly or indirectly related to the central conflict of the story, and also making the obstacles too intense too fast or making them too final too soon can be a problem because you risk introducing tangents that take you away from the global story. So a couple of ideas to innovate your progressive complications, you want to look at what the character's wants and needs are for the global and secondary story. You also want to look at the human needs tank that's at stake and how can you challenge that human needs tank. For example, in A Caper, it's a type of crime story. So the human needs tank we're looking at is safety and security. So what are different ways that you can use to challenge that human need? The essential action of the character or the character scene goal you also want to look at because you want those progressive complications within the scene to be connected to that scene goal. You also might look at different levels of conflict, the extrapersonal, interpersonal, and inner conflicts that, that come up. They're all fodder for your progressive complications. And you also want to look at the nature of the antagonist within the scene because they're going to be the thing that's really getting in the way. As Valerie described the spreadsheet, there's a lot to track in there. So how do you know how far you should go in your analysis? Well, my rule of thumb is to move from macro, so the big, big, big picture, incrementally to the micro until you find what the real challenge is within the story. So with those additions, let's test this proposition. Anne and Kim? Thank you, Leslie. So the first thing that we wanted to discuss about the story principle itself is the name. So Sean has referred to it as the power of 10. Um, it's this tool which we evaluate the subjective in an objective way, which is, of course, what StoryGrid is all about. So Sean and Tim, they have a good talk about this principle on a podcast episode about higher concepts, which I will link to in the show notes. And, you know, in there, Sean describes it and kind of walks us through, you know, how you might go about doing it. And so one thing that Anne and I discussed this week is that for a lot of writers, the idea of assigning numbers to aspects of their story can be a bit daunting. You know, one thing we hear a lot about the story grid method in general is that it can feel intimidating to approach. You know, there's spreadsheets, there's all this stuff, and and there's a steep learning curve. And it reminds me of the way I feel about Scrivener. Apparently, it's got all these really helpful tools that are life-changing. But due to the overwhelm um, and the fact that, like, I want to be able to use everything exactly the way to its maximize and all that, I just I can't get past the basics because I'm just too overwhelmed. I've never been able to conquer Scrivener. I've tried several times. And I know a lot of serious writers who love it and use it. But here's the thing. I have a 34-column story grid spreadsheet that I use. So I don't lack in the left brain department. But for some reason, I just write better in plain document. And my point is that, you know, the story grid does tend to be attractive to sort of more analytical writers. And then there's a tendency to worry about specific, accurate numerical values in something like this power of 10 concept. 
And it becomes a perfect form of resistance for people like us. It's like, well, did I get the number right? Could I tweak it a little bit more? And then meanwhile, the more sort of right-brained, inspiration-driven writers kind of tends to be put off, maybe forever, by some of the scary left-brain tools of the story grid. And then they miss right. out on all the benefits <laughs> right. of the tool for editing their stories. So my point is, make these tools your own. Turn them into what you need them to be. Don't be paralyzed one way or the other by the very specific terminology that may have been published in the original book or that sometimes Sean has talked about. Absolutely. I I often tell my clients, no one's grading you on this, right? Like no one's grading you on how good you can fill out your, your spreadsheet. The point is, fill out the spreadsheet so you can figure some stuff out, right? You mean it's not to get an it's A? It's not to get an A, right? Which is weird for me because I've always been a I got to get an A kind of girls. So for clarity purposes, you know, we don't want to get too bogged down in the idea of quantification. And so I propose that we refer to this tool as from a new name, and I'm going with the pain scale of irreversibility. Sean mentions he uses the analogy of the pain scale in that Higher Concepts podcast and also which I will also link to the show notes that I just thought of right now. One of my favorite blogs is called Hyperbole and a Half. And she has this amazing blogs with these hilarious cartoons that she draws and they're just fantastic. And she has one about the pain scale and it is epic. So definitely look for that in the show notes. So the idea here is on a scale of one to 10, how reversible is this? One meaning totally reversible. Five is reversible, but there are going to be consequences. And 10 is, you know, totally irreversible. And then of course, all of the degrees in between. If it's in the way, just throw it out. The point is figure out, are we progressively complicating and going to more irreversible rather than than backwards? So I was thinking about how I would approach this. And you know, this is going to be the thing that Valerie and I kind of keep working on and coming up with a method that is simple, simplified and, and hopefully repeatable by others. And so I was thinking that rather than going through each scene in succession, that if I were to tackle it, I would look at it kind of like how they are in relation to one another. So, you know, kind of starting with like the 15 core scenes, then, okay, is the inciting incident at the beginning versus the turning point of the midpoint? You know, are we progressively complicating going up? Do we see that degree? And from there, you know, looking at just the beginning hook, how is our level of reversibility at the beginning of the beginning hook versus the end? doing each act in sequence and then comparing your inciting incidents from each. Look at your inciting incident in your beginning hook, look at it in your middle build and your ending payoff. Do those increase? You know, same with turning points or climaxes and that kind of thing. And then at some point when you're ready to get, as Leslie was saying, going from macro down into the micro, eventually you would get down to where you're doing the scenes in sequence and looking at how we go from, you know, the opening scene to the final scene. Because you are going to have moments that go down, but it's almost like we've leveled up. Like when we have those big increases, we've gone to a new level. And so then the other ones might be smaller and then we're going to jump again. And so it might seem like the pacing or the tension has gone down, but it's not quite the same because we have leveled up. So we're going to be working on that and we'll be hopefully have a tool out for you to kind of practice and use. One thing that I wanted to note was what counts as a 10 in one story versus another is going to vary a lot based on the genre and the life values. Um, and also, even within you know two crime stories or in two love stories, those life values are going to be uniquely defined based on the specifics of the genre. So before you start evaluating your scenes on this pain scale of irreversibility, consider the elements of your story scale. So another example of why defining what's the genre is so important because it applies to everything. And then the other thing that we wanted to mention is that this tool 
is not for when you're in the outlining or first draft stage of a project. This is a second draft to 11th draft tool. So, you know, don't worry about it until it's time. And again, Sean talks about this in that um, Higher Concepts podcast. You want to just get the draft down. Then when you come back a a second time, third, fourth, whatever, then that's where you can say, oh, I really want to go ahead and dump this complication here to a seven. And I'm going to want to make this one over here. This is not a 10, but it really needs to be that kind of thing. So don't worry about it until you're at the stage when it's time. Um, I wanted to comment on something that Jari said. He made this great point about set and setting. And I hadn't really thought about it, but it really got me thinking about this movie differently. When he says that a naked motorcycle ride would have had less impact in a story about a hippie commune, he's really talking about contrast. See, there's no absolute value of either progressive or complication. The question is, compared to what? And the answer should be compared to the previous complication in the story and compared to what the reader expects from this type of story. Valerie was getting at this too with Is it a cliche for this type of story? Can you make it more unique, less expected for this type of story? So I agree that with Valerie that Waking Ned Divine does a better job of the crime caper story than Mad Money did. Uh, We looked at that one in season two. But I think it might be because Ned Divine is set in a world that I'm personally not familiar with. So in some ways, Tully Moore and the whole story is presented like a fantasy. It has almost fairy tale elements to it. Now, I've spent a total of two weeks in Ireland in my life, and so I can easily, as an American on the West Coast in a big city, I can look at village life there as this unknown world where anything goes. And so, you know, a lot of the comedy that helps all of us suspend disbelief for the duration of the story comes from this outsider point of view, the world looking slyly in on this quirky, almost exotic place. And I think it's important to note that the filmmaker is British, not Irish, even though it's set in an Irish town. So there's sort of a foreigner looking in element to it. And so I'm wondering how much leeway, extra leeway, a North American audience might grant to a story like this for that reason. And I don't know, I just wonder. But Another thing I wonder is, is the quote-unquote village story a unique subgenre on the reality leaf of Sean's genre clover? Roger Ebert, who reviewed this movie, seemed to think so. He, He lists a whole slew of, quote, delightful village comedies that seem to spin out of the British Isles annually, and he includes movies like Local Hero and The Full Monty in his little list. And if it is like a, its own separate little reality subgenre, do we let certain conventions slide? So all I can go on is my own feeling at the end of it. It was at best kind of cute. It was funny. It was, I enjoyed it. I was willing to suspend disbelief and step over the plot holes because I was having fun. And yet I can't argue with Valerie's conclusion that the final reveal about Morris's paternity was of a much lower dramatic or comic value than the complication and payoff that preceded it, where Nasty Lizzie was going to blow the whistle on the whole caper. So if I were editing this story, I might honestly suggest deleting the whole paternity story. The little romance was fine, but the whole paternity story brought in an ironic ending where, by gosh, there after all, there was a legitimate heir to the lot of fortune all along. And That ironic ending isn't really required of a caper. In fact, you don't really want one in a caper. And I think I'd have enjoyed the story more and not less without it. 
So for the majority of the story, I wasn't sure what the point of the Maggie subplot was. It didn't feel developed enough to stand on its own, and it hadn't really been integrated into the main plot. And interestingly, an article that I found from the Irish Times from when the film came out in 1998, which from an Irish um, newspaper, they didn't really love the film, um, which is also interesting. And I will have a link to that article in the show notes. But yeah, they referred to this specific point. They said, an even more threadbare subplot involves Maggie, Susan Lynch, a young single mother torn between two prospective husbands, one of them Finn, James Nesbitt, a pig farmer with a personal hygiene problem. If it wasn't for the pigs, we'd be settled by now, laments Maggie. So, you know, just the fact that they pointed out that it does feel like a threadbare subplot and we're all kind of, you know, nodding our heads saying, yeah, it really did. So, but for me, you know, rather than cut it, I would look for ways to develop it more and weave it in to the main story. And I think there's a way that you could make it begin as one thing and then turn it and show us that it's something else. Like, for example, if they had set up a little bit more that if it wasn't for the pigs, but they never really go to the point where they say, what would it take for Finn not to have to work with pigs anymore? Which at some point we realize, you know, or at the end, Maggie says, you know, once they get the money, she's like, no more pigs, you know? And so I think if we had known that, okay, money would make a big difference for him, or that's kind of like the impeding factor or something like that, then I think it could have played out just as a kind of a, a pull on Jackie to not be selfish with the money to show that there are other needs beyond his own. And and that could maybe have been a way to weave it in. And then at the end, we find out, well, Morris could have had the money the whole time. So I think that would have helped. And as an editor, I would have tried to take the story in that direction. But even still, I still felt like the payoff in the end when Maggie tells Jack that Ned is Morris's father worked for me. I was surprised and I was delighted. So if you'll humor me a second, I'm going to just run through the dialogue of that little section and then um, we'll talk about it. Jackie, would you say Morris needed a father more than seven million pounds? I'd say needed a father more than 50 million. That's what I thought. What are you saying? How would he be entitled to the money? Ned does a family, Jackie. No. You'll not tell a soul now. Morris is the millionaire. Yeah. He treated me better than any man before. You must take it all, Maggie. Take it all. Put it away for yourself and the boy. No, no. Morris can do without it. Besides, Finn would know he wasn't the father. I can do without the millions. But I can't afford to lose Finn. Three hundred and thirty thousand each is plenty. <laughs> Slancher. Slancher. So what I loved about this moment was rather than trying to convince Maggie to let them all share it, which is, you know, Jackie's been trying to get his hands on the money since the very beginning, Jackie tells Maggie to just take it all. Take it all, put it away for herself and Morris. So Jackie would rather let Maggie and Morris take it rightfully as their own, but Maggie would rather have her son have a father than than money. I feel like this moment's not about it being an obstacle, but it's a moment that shows the change that has occurred for Jackie and for Maggie and for the whole town. Everyone was, you know, playing the lottery and everybody wanted the money and all this stuff. And then the fact that they've come together. So 
we don't have a strong internal genre here, but I would say, I would argue that there still is one. And I would say it is status sentimental, which interestingly was our opinion on Mad Money, or at least was my opinion on Mad Money. And so I'm always looking for good internal external genre pairings. And now we've seen two examples of crime caper with the status sentimental story. Which is when a sympathetic protagonist with steadfast will but a naive worldview encounters a challenge or opportunity and has the supportive mentor of high moral character, he can rise in social standing. So in this case, for Jackie and Maggie and the whole town, they are able to to do this. So specifically, we have, you know, a sympathetic protagonist with a steadfast will, but I would say naivete, massive sophistication worldview is Jackie. And he encounters an opportunity, which is a chance to claim Ned's winnings. He has the supportive mentor of high moral character, which is Annie, his wife, who reminds him of the risk to others, especially his best friend, Michael. And he can rise in social standing. So he pulls off the ruse and the town is able to split the winnings. So in a status story, true success is at odds not just with failure, but with the negation of the negation, which is selling out. In order to reach success, the protagonist often must change their definition of what success actually is. And for Jackie, it's changing from taking the winnings for himself to sharing it evenly with the whole town, even to the point where he's willing to give it up so that the rightful heir can have it. And rather than be something that drives the town apart, the shared wealth brings everyone together. And I also, I liked the fact that it came after Lizzie crashed on the on the beach in the phone booth uh, because that obstacle was, was gone, you know, but the greatest of all, the actual heir entitled to the winnings was revealed, except that it wasn't an obstacle because Maggie's definition of success was about love and not money, which feels like the controlling idea and, you know, and theme here in this story. And I feel like that's why that scene was really important. And I would, oh, I would fight to keep it in. I think it might have worked if they'd given more weight to the paternity story earlier in the story, and they might have made it work better as the ending payoff for the whole story if they had just built it up emotionally and intellectually for the audience early in the story, because it was the ending payoff, and you got to set up your ending payoff early in the story, in the beginning hook or else early in the middle build, and you need to introduce it in a way that engages the reader's emotions. So how to bring this all back to novelists? The basic point that Valerie and Jari are making is, I think, completely unassailable. Complications must progress, and you measure, quote-unquote, that progression by assessing how reversible each obstacle or opportunity is for your protagonist. It's pretty simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. It'll take some work and experience to get a feel for it. And here's a suggestion. A good way to practice is on the scene level. It's very small, so you you can see the whole scene at once. So, I say watch out for what I call the bobbing boat syndrome, where the tension or difficulty goes up, then down, then up. And you need to, within a scene, you can rearrange the events so that they ratchet up, up, up like a boat going up a big wave, which is the crisis of the scene. Then when you get the hang of it, you'll be able to to apply the technique, the lesson to your whole beginning hook, your whole middle build, your whole ending payoff, and finally see it in the overall work. So I strongly recommend to people have patience with yourself. It's like learning to drive. You practice and practice and it's scary. And then one day it just clicks and you're driving. Absolutely. I think with all of this, we just have to embrace that deep practice. I was talking with Courtney Harrell, uh, another story grid editor, yesterday on a story and how frustrating this stuff can be and you know all the study and the toil that we put into it. And and she said, um, but that's how we get there, right? And yes, absolute, that's absolutely how. And it's the only way how is by being willing to roll up our sleeves and do it wrong 
I remember Tim saying something at some point about flailing, right? That flailing is how we move forward. And I've probably said this again, and I'm I'm sure I will say it again in the future, is embrace flailing. I think that's really with your own work, with studying masterworks, with any of this stuff, it's, you know, we're not here to do it perfect. We're here to tell a better story, which means we're going to have to, we're going to have to flail around a little bit. I hate to flail. I like to be right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and yet, and yet, um, I know. I know. I'll also add this. Remember that your style genre and your reality genre, as well as the content genre, are going to have a lot to say about what constitutes a complication in your story based on whether the stakes are life and death or justice and injustice and whether a fantasy setting lets you play with your reader's expectations about the reality of your world as I think they did in this movie. They made it into almost a fantasy setting, and it did change our expectations for the movie. Okie doke. So I agree with Anne's point about Maggie and the Maggie and Finn's subplot. I mean, if it was deleted, to my mind, the overall story of Jackie trying to get the lottery winnings wouldn't have changed at all. Now, here's something that's interesting. Kim proposed the idea of doing away with the power of 10 title in favor of the pain scale of irreversibility. And I actually did something pretty similar. Uh, in fact, I went one step further and I nixed the whole language of degree of versatility because I was getting too confused. There was just too much going on and I needed to simplify it and make sure that what I was doing was getting back to the whole point of the exercise in the first place. So I started to ask myself, how hard is it for Jackie to dig himself out of this hole? I mean, it amounts to the same thing because that is essentially what the degree of reversibility is all about. But I found that an easier way for me to wrap my head around. Okay. Well, since two of you have opted to rename the power of 10, should we have a motion that the power of 10 be henceforth known as something else? Oh, I like that. Okay. I think we should call it this. How hard is it for the hero to dig himself out of the hole? (laughs) Well, I think of it as either the Spinal Tap drummer's fate or how to kill Kenny. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Spinal Tap, as you know, the drummer always dies. (laughs) And when you're trying to progressively complicate anything like that, you got to come up with new and unique ways to kill the drummer. And in South Park, they always kill Kenny and they always kill Kenny in new and unique ways. So if you're thinking, well, how do I how do I make this more progressively complicated? Then it's always like, well, how am I going to kill Kenny? <laughs> so after all of this analysis, the question is, do we still think that this film or this story is an example of the writing concept? I think it is. All in all, even though you know we spent a bit of time talking about what didn't work in the story, all in all, I think Waking the Divine still is an excellent example. To you, that we can use when we study progressive complications. The complications do progress. There is a mixture of obstacles and opportunities with no repeats, and the stakes are getting higher. Even the last scene, which doesn't work well for me, but does for Kim, is an interesting study of progressive complications. It's kind of like a mini case study. You know, the way I think about raising the stakes is when they're talking about how Spinal Tap is like a bigger band and a more heavy band. One of the band guys is like, hey, when we need that little extra push to kind of go over the cliff, we turn it up to 11. And that's the way at least I think about how to progressively complicate something. How do you turn it up to 11? Waking Ned Divine's got a ton of scenes that look like that. Some of them, you know, they kind of don't work or fall flat. 
but the overall progressive complication of the entire movie does push things over the cliff and literally they push Lizzie over the cliff. So, you know, how can you not like that? Okay. Has our analysis of waking Ned Divine helped you to better understand progressive complications? Have you ever analyzed a story using the power of 10? If so, how did you handle it? Is there a novel or film that you think is an excellent example of progressive complications? Let us know on Twitter at StoryGridRT. To wind up the episode, we take questions from our listeners. This week's question comes to us from Christy Garrett in the StoryGrid Summer Level Up course. Christy asks, is it necessary for both of the lovers in a love story to be involved in a triangle? Alternatively, could one of the competing love interests be something other than a human, such as a man in love with his job or himself, which also threatens the relationship? So I was looking at this question, and my instinct is to say I don't think it's necessary that both lovers be in a triangle. I think the convention could still work without it, but I think Sean has mentioned that it is necessary, which we we have a tendency to, tr- to trust his judgment. So I think it probably is certainly more common because the purpose of the convention seems to be to make each lover desirable to another person and which, you know, shows the audience that this person is desirable, that this, this isn't their only chance at love. So you really are going to have to choose it and want it. And it ups the stakes for the fact that there are other options. But I, I'm not comfortable with saying that there's no way to make the love story work if you don't have a, the other rival, but it also may be that that rival is just something other than another person. So a couple of examples just about rivals in general. So Pride and Prejudice, Darcy's rival for Elizabeth was Wickham, who she was actually interested in for a time. But Elizabeth's rival for Darcy is Caroline Bingley or maybe his cousin Anne. They certainly don't get the same page time development. So even though we do have them, they are mentioned. It's kind of more of an aside. (laughs) We're not talking the Twilight love triangle quite so explicitly in in that story. As far as a rival being something non-human, yes, absolutely. In Kramer versus Kramer, it is his job. You know, he's in advertising, he's trying to make partner, he works long hours, and he has neglected his family. In Bridges of Madison County, she is married, so of course we have the love interest there is the rival for her husband and vice versa. But her rival for him, for Clint Eastwood's character, is his career, his life of travel, his love of freedom and independence, rather than being another woman. Thank you. So if you have questions about progressive complications or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT, or better still, by going to storygrid.com slash resources, clicking on the Editor Roundtable podcast, and leaving us a voice message. That wraps it up for this week. Great discussion. Thank you, Anne, Jari, Kim, and Valerie for your excellent editorial insights into Waking Ned Divine. We hope our discussion has given you a better grasp of progressive complications and the power of 10. We'd like to invite our listeners in the StoryGrid community to comment, argue with us on our interpretations, and Make other suggestions to us on Twitter at StoryGridRT. If you're interested in hiring a certified StoryGrid editor or would like to find out more about what we do, visit StoryGrid.com editing. 
If you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our website can be found in the show notes. Join us next time to find out whether Kim can make the case that the 2013 romantic comedy drama About Time is a great example of a global internal genre story. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.